Welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. If the microphone sounds extra crispy today, it's because we are recording an intro inside of our new studio. My boy Graham spent way too much money and time creating the dopest ass little studio inside of our home. Uh, we are lovers. We have been together. <laughs> <laughs> No, our third roommate moved out. Um, he was ready to go be a big boy and live with his girlfriend. And both Graham and I's partners have their own homes in different places. And so me and Graham get to uh, co-dwell with this third empty room that has now been turned into, really, it's our baby's room. The studio is Graham and mine's baby's room. I'm really just trying to see how uncomfortable I can make him in this introduction. <laughs> And we have succeeded. Um, today's podcast is one of the most intense stories that I've heard to date on my podcast. That might be redundant. And then I just took a long pause and swallowed. And so maybe, you know what, Graham, keep it. Let the people see what the sausage looks like before it gets dyed. Okay. You know that salmon that you're buying that you think is wild caught? That shit's brown, dog. And they dyed it. They dyed it orange because those fish were sick. So that this intro is like a sick fish is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. On today's episode, Paul Johnson, a man that I met through Fit for Service, is coming on to share his story of being a type A business CEO and having Lyme's disease. Just eat his body away from behind his productivity for decades. And he did everything that our culture could possibly offer for him to transmute his illness. And what he ended up doing that worked is something that I am not recommending anyone who is going to listen to this podcast do. I'm going to say it again for the people in the back. The story that you're going to hear Paul Johnson share about how he alchemized his 20 years with Lyme disease, Eric Gotze does not recommend just because he is talking about it on his podcast. One of the things that is the most rewarding about being in the position that I'm in for Fit for Service is witnessing the transformations that happens with people's nervous systems. Like what they feel like when I first meet them at the first event and what they look like a year later. And Paul had one of the most dramatic transformations of nervous systems that I'd ever seen. And so I demanded that he tell me what his story was. And that eventually brought him onto this podcast. One of the core things that his story illuminates is the hope that arises in community and how a community can come together and help us through some of the hardest times in our lives. And one of the things that I've been seeing online a lot recently for probably about the last month, but fuck, it's been going on for years, is how quick we are to try to exile people from the collective culture. And I've been going down this thread recently uh, where I've been talking about what I've been calling exile language. And it's the different words 
with the different tones and intents that we use to remove someone from the inner circle of humans that I have compassion for. And I'm not going to go on a long diatribe on this intro, but my invitation to all of you listening is it's easier to see it when other people do it. So if you need to start there, start there. But pay attention when people who repost political memes or tweets or posts themselves, look at the language. Is the language painting another group of people as fundamentally outside my sphere of compassion, out of my sphere of kindness? Are we placing these people outside of the tribe? And that shit is a slippery slope to being able to justify to yourself to do cruel things. So if you don't see where you're doing it, I invite you to go look at how other people are operating online because it's easier for us to see other people do it because of our own bias. And then if you're ready, start to go inward and look at how you think about certain groups of people. You know, if I say far right or far left, we probably have just identified 99.99% of the listeners who have found that there's a group that they don't have compassion for. Things are going to get intense as we get closer to our next election cycle. And we're going to see this exiling language pick up. And I want to ask all my listeners who feel the profundity of what would happen if they chose to actively try to synthesize people's exiling language. My first step of that would be to not do it. And the second step would be to lend compassion into the conversation when you feel someone is trying to exile another group of people. I think it's important and I want to do better at showing through example how we can do this. So I will. We're going to have some podcasts coming out probably in the next six weeks where we are really going to get into it. And your boy's excited about it. As always, thank you for your time and your attention and bringing it to this podcast. And if you want to stay connected to the heartbeat of everything that I'm doing, uh, check out my newsletter at ericgazzi.com and enjoy. Paul Johnson, thank you for coming on the podcast. And just to give people a quick introduction, because we're about to get into one of the most incredible stories I've ever heard in my life. So we should give you guys some context. Um, I met Paul through Fit for Service um, about mid-2020. And uh, really like the first time that we got to connect was on like a coaching call. And he introduced to me what his current like health slash psychological landscape was. And I'm going to pass it off to him pretty soon to share that, like the story before the journey. And then six months later, I see him in person and I'm like, dude, what the fuck happened to you? And then he told me the second story. So, uh, Welcome to the podcast. Yeah. And if you could help the listeners understand the pre-story story 
what was the situation that you were in when you and I talked for the first time on the phone about a year and a half ago? Yeah, I was, um, I was in treatment for Lyme disease and I'd been battling with it for a long time, just having myriad health issues, surgeries for a long time, didn't even know what was going on. And so I developed a bunch of different daily, call it my daily rhythm, checklist, utilizing different plant medicines, breath work, meditation, exercise, visualization, and just like working through all of that. But yeah, that was pretty crazy because when I met, when we met in person the first time was in Sedona and I drove straight from a medical clinic in Mexico where I'd been hooked up to IVs and getting injections and all sorts of treatment all week. And then I rolled up there (laughs) and that event was so magical. I mean, Sedona is always great, but what the fit, when the fit for service community comes together there, I mean, just the, the, it's the container is just like a space shuttle, man. And I think at that time we lived in San Diego and we were thinking about moving to Costa Rica and we had felt this call to move to Costa Rica, but it was scary. I didn't know anybody there. Um, a business in San Diego and I didn't have any doctors or access to medicine or treatment in Costa Rica. But after we went to the event, we were just like, yeah, we just, because when you get around people too, and you see people that are stepping out in faith and moving into their highest and best self and how creatively it manifests in so many ways. I mean, I think that's one of the beautiful things about how creator manifests in us and through us in our lives. And it shows up in just like all these beautiful, like colors and vibrancies and expressions. And it gave us like a lot of inspiration that we were on the right path. Like, yeah, listen to the whisper, do, do what you are intending to do. So then we landed in Costa Rica, December 1st, 2020. And real quick, I, I want to paint the picture of where you were when I first met you, because it's, it is so incredible, the transformation that I've seen. And it's truly one of the, if not the greatest reward, um, being a part of the container setting for fit for service is to see what people are like when they first enter and then to see what they're like a year later or two years later. And just so I can remember correctly, like you were, you know, kind of the classic type A, starting businesses, growing businesses, selling businesses, working all motherfucking day, uh, not really listening to your body. And then the whisper grew to a firm voice that grew to a scream that manifested as a biological disease. Yeah. Like crippled you. Yeah. I've been in... I've been in the finance industry for 24 years next month and just, you know, worked, ran just a machine of a business and super regimented, just powered through. And I was living with a lot of pain. I was living with pain for like 18 years and it just, 
progressively got worse. And I was doing things, you know, get acupuncture, massage. I was training here and there, but I never stopped to really look into, look in deeply to what was going on. And everybody I talked to couldn't seem to figure out what was happening. I'd seen hundreds of different doctors and specialists, but nobody knew what was happening until I really started to break down. And 2012, it started getting bad. But by 2019, I was in crippling pain. I hadn't been able to drive a car for like three years um, just to get moving in the morning. Took a lot of like painkillers, stimulants, you know, you know, ironically, I'm, I'm like doing cold showers and ice baths and different things. Like I was mixing in some stuff, but like the level of toxicity in my body was super high because I was continuing to drive forward and, you know, I had somebody driving me around, going to meetings. That was the part of your story that stood out the most to me is you couldn't drive for three years and yet you still were putting in like 10 to 12 hour work days, phone calls all yeah. the time, meetings. Oh yeah. And it's like, uh, one of the things that is interesting that I see specifically in fit for service is um, like at least 10% of the members are super high charging type A type people who have been ignoring like the small pain whisper in their body for years. And it oddly manifests as Lyme disease. Mm. And I don't know what the root is. I'm not pretending to be a doctor. I'm not. It's, it's an interesting pattern that I'm seeing specifically in, in our age mm -hmm. that uh, people who like create big businesses and are, are just always giving all of their energy to that business. It's like a disease will manifest itself loudly enough that tries to force them to stop. That was actually one question I wanted to ask you is what you thought about psychosomatic disease, because it's kind of a controversial thing, especially with people that suffer with chronic pain. You know, yeah. you already feel bad enough. And then it's like, if you think the way I'm living, thinking, behaving is, is manifesting or exasperating this situation. But for me, I feel like, you know, going back from childhood all through, like the amount of repression and trauma and abuse and all the things that I internalized, you know, whether that formulated a mindset where I just wouldn't listen to my body and address it or whether that actually manifested the disease. I'm not sure. All I know is I was, I was jacked. I was in bad yeah. shape, dude. So what's interesting for me is because my background uh, is in Jungian psychology, a psychosomatic illness is absolutely not a controversial or new idea that Carl Jung was tracking that a hundred years ago. Mm. And that, um, you know, there's this interesting false dichotomy between the mind and the body that in the last 20 years has really started to like uh, our uh, disassociation of that dichotomy is starting to dissolve, thank goodness. And that um, a, a purely scientific lens on it is uh, repressed trauma and numbing is not an act, is not a passive physiological process. Like to be disassociated from your pain is not uh, energetically neutral. It takes physiological energy to numb what you're feeling. 
and that uh, it can tax your biological system to a point where it impairs your ability to repair. As soon as it starts to fuck with your ability to sleep, that amplifies how poorly you're able to clear and repair the biological stress that's on you every day. And then you just, you know, five years, 10 years, 15 years. And one of the, like the canary in the coal mine is if you uh, get to the point where you can't sleep well. And then once sleep gets impaired, it's like all the physiological functions that are trying to repair the stress in your body gets worse. And then there's going to be cracks somewhere. So, uh, and also it feels like there's great scientific literature on trauma now. And if you go look at that literature, like it's not controversial. Now, to say that it's only psychological, I think is naive, you know, like it's, it's for sure both. But uh, from a Jungian standpoint, psychosomatic illness is absolutely not <laughs> a new novel fringe idea. You know, there's a hundred years plus of literature on it. Yeah, and that's, I agree with you. And I think there's, when you're in it, figuring out how to unwind that is really difficult. And that's the opportunity I was given later on in life. Um, In 2019, I was, I was breaking down really hard. Um, It's getting paralysis on the right side of my body. I mean, I would wake up, take, I was taking like 100, 150 milligrams of painkillers a day, which I think a prescribed dose is like 30 or 40 and stimulants. And I was microdosing and I would throw up four or five times before meetings sometimes. And I would do six, seven meetings back to back. And then I would get up and do it again the next day. I did that all summer 2019 was, was scary. Cause I wasn't sleeping, you know, I had insomnia and I was scared to fall asleep cause I thought I might die. Wow. And I was seeing a bunch of doctors and nobody could figure out what was going on. I was listening to, um, I had heard Aubrey, um, some of his podcasts about ayahuasca and plant medicine. And I was working with, um, microdosing mushrooms, but I'm like, man, I need something like big. I need, I need to go deeper and like really go through a whole process. And so I started reading studying and he had a thing, you know, listing out different ones. And I had seen like a boga on the list, but I wasn't really interested in doing that. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I ended up going, what I recognized at this point was I had no idea what was going on in my body. I had no idea what my pain was with chronic opioid use. Um, you can create a condition called hyperalgesic where certain pain signals are being numbed. Other ones amplify. Mm. So you could have a level three pain that your body reads as a level seven. So I really had no idea what pain I had, where it was coming from, how bad it was. So I decided to go to this clinic in Mexico that was an integrated medicine clinic. Some friends um, of mine had gone there had cancer and Lyme disease, but they had like a detox protocol. And so I went down there to do that. And, um, that was, that was gnarly, bro. I did not, I took out all the life insurance I could. I didn't think I was coming back. Yeah. One of the things that a, a lot of people really underestimate is the 
uh, danger and intensity and risk from chronic opioid or benzodiazepine use and then the withdrawal symptoms yeah. and how long that can last. Like, yeah, I was on both. Yeah, I was on benzos too. Like what's wild is some of the research that's come out in the last probably about 10 years, uh, if you go and look for it, about uh, how addicted the body gets to opioids and benzodiazepines and that the withdrawal symptoms specifically from benzos can last for years. Yeah. And so you went down to Mexico to detox from the benzos and the opioids? Yeah. So, um, I went in there, <laughs> I didn't want anyone to go down with me. I was just like holed up in a condo on the beach and, um, things got really weird. Um, what happened? Well, um, definitely. Well, I brilliantly decided I was going to start the <laughs> detox a few days early, right? Not recommended. Not recommended when you're by yourself in a hotel in Mexico and nobody around. And so, yeah, I started just going into like a psychosis and yep. suicidal and, you know, I had enough, I'd built up enough practices in my life to where, um, I was doing my gratitude journaling I was doing breath work. There was a sauna in the place, the showers were cold. Um, I posted pictures for my kids around the house. I had a checklist. I made a checklist of reasons to stay alive. Wow. So every time, every day I woke up, I would go down the checklist and I would go down through these things. And then I would have alarms throughout the day to remind me to that. And then I had the East Forest Ramdas album on repeat. Wow. I get to see uh, East Forest this weekend in Mexico. This is the second time because I met him down in Tamarindo. I we're going down and hanging out with him and some other, and Donnie and some other people for like five days, which I'm stoked, but... I listened to that album on repeat a million times over and over again. And so I got through it into the detox protocol, but then things didn't get better necessarily. After a week of that, I was still in really bad shape. And so they said, um, we have a doctor in Ensenada that does Ibogaine. So, um, and for people who don't know, uh, <laughs> Ibogaine is probably the most, uh, it is technically the most dangerous psychedelic that we know of because you can actually die on it if you have a heart condition. And so that if you do Ibogaine, um, it is not recommended that you do it in the absence of a uh, um, medical professional who is able to monitor your heart throughout it and that it lasts something like 36 hours. So Ibogaine is one of the 13 alkaloids of the boga plant. So it's only 10 hours. Oh, so it's that <laughs> isolate. Okay. I don't recommend it doing it with a trained person unless you're 100% called to do it because it is, um, it is a deep journey that will, that will blow you into pieces. Yeah. And the guy that I worked with down there was great. Um, there was a mix up on, I learned some things later on about why I had such a rough experience after. One of the other doctors had switched my prescription to tramadol, which is um, contraindicated with Ibogaine. And mm. then I brilliantly had taken like three grams of mushrooms that morning. 
So, I mean, the visions were beautiful, but the tramadol counteraction, you know, the beauty of it was it got me off the opiates. And the rough part was I was like in and out of a psychosis for several months. You know, my nervous system all the way up through um, probably July of the next year. So I went in into November and then I was in and out of like, and some of that was at this point, we didn't know I had Lyme disease. Lyme disease is a really tricky one to test for. The testing, there's been some improvements in the last few years, and that's why you're seeing more positive tests. Because the Lyme, you know, spirouette can penetrate the blood-brain barrier, but it also can create a biofilm to hide itself from detection inside of healthy cells. So I'd been tested for Lyme disease several times because I, when I went to the clinic, I had like organs shutting down. I had all these different autoimmune indicators but nothing was like clear after I did the Ibogaine and my system got disrupted. Then the Lyme tested positive a couple of days later. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, there was somewhere where I was going to go with that, but I can't quite remember. So, uh, could you, can, Oh, uh, what were your specific symptoms of the psychosis? And I am before you answer that, like a thing that I have found in the research on, uh, people getting off of like multiple year use of psychiatric meds is um, like psychosis is something that does arise when you try to get off of it because the neurochemistry of becoming addicted to some of these can be so disruptive that when you get off of them, you know, there is the feeling of psychosis. And it's this really weird thing that we have in our culture that we're in this position where millions of people have been taking these psychiatric meds for years and they have been they have become neurochemically dependent upon them and that upon their removal it can actually create more severe illness than before you got on them yeah. and anything that you had while on them and it's why getting off of them is such a tricky and hard thing and uh, the more professionals that we have in our culture that uh, know how to guide people through this is incredibly important. And it's not something for a life coach or a amateur shaman to like <laughs> offer to people. Like this is something that requires medical professional uh, insight and discipline. Yeah. I was working with a team of people and they were pulling every lever and pushing every button they could. And, and um, I would say there was a couple different things. One was my nervous system was so dysregulated all the time. I was having like dozens of panic attacks a day. Um, there's, there's times I would just like break down, just fall on the ground, like screaming. I could see like dark shadows, like coming out of my, screams and um so i was having like hallucinations and the the pain i felt in my nervous system because i still had a lot of pain in my body because my body had been ravaged by the lyme disease i've had four surgeries back procedure had a bunch of different things going on i had hundreds of tears in my l3 four or five discs that wow. they didn't know where they came from 
So it, my body was, was pretty wrecked, you know, at this point. And so there was a lot of repair that was going on. Um, but the nervous system pain was way worse than any physical pain I'd ever experienced. I'd experienced a lot of physical pain, but yeah, the, the panic attacks, the, I would wake up two or three times a night, like feeling like I was suffocating couldn't breathe. Steph said I would like tremor in my sleep. She thought I was having seizures. Um, so that went on for some of, some of those things were happening before, but then it just became really, really huge extremes. It said it was like waking up every day, six feet under and trying to figure out how to climb just to get above ground. And, and this was after the detox. That was after the detox. Yeah. And, you know, before that I was having stuff, but I was masking a lot of it. I was numbing a lot of it. And so now I was feeling all of it. And so you're going through the detox. What was the next um, major event? Um, after the detox and probably by midsummer, I was just, um, I just wanted to die. I was like, I just can't do this anymore. And there was a shift that happened. I was, as I was in treatment, I'm listening to books, I'm reading, you know, constantly. And there was a point where it was like, I was reading Thich Nhat Hanh a lot and Michael Singer. And I, I just had this thought of like, can I have gratitude for the pain? Can I still experience joy and happiness even while I'm in this suffering, you know? And so I started re, and that was probably like the daily rhythms thing that I talked to you about was I went into, how do I remap my day-to-day -day life to give my best, give it my best shot and see where things go. And so it was like midsummer 2020. And then I had wanted to join Fit for Service when it first came out, but I was so sick, I couldn't do it. And so that was one of my goals was I'm going to start, you know, training because with COVID, I lost access to all my physical therapists, a bunch of the people that I was getting treatment from that were helping me a lot. When that disappeared, I just spiraled into a deep hole and um, had to come up with all this stuff on my own. What can I do each day on my own without anybody's help? Yeah. And so I was like, walk up the stairs, walk around the neighborhood for 10 minutes, which is scary because if my body locked up and I'm like yep. I'm on the pavement, just laying out, you know, but I just started really small. Like the first checklist was called inch by inch, just inch by inch. Let's do it. Yeah. So I started to get better. You know, I, I was still needing treatment every couple of weeks. I'd have to go in for treatment. I was getting PRP, stem cell, ozone, tons of IVs, hundreds of injections. You know, and a lot of that was repairing my body. But it's a slow process. And by the end of summer, I was just like, man, I've been in treatment for like nine months now, spending hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I'm getting better, but I'm still dependent on taking tramadol and Kratom. I was taking... 40 or 50 
different supplements, you know, getting treatment. And I just felt really dependent on that. I'm like, this is not the life that I want. I want, I want something different. And that's when we were filling the call to Costa Rica. Yeah. And so we went to fit for service. We confirmed our like, yep, we're doing this. We're going, we sold our house. We lived nomadically for a little bit. And, um, then we went to Costa Rica, December 1st, 2020. <laughs> and then you soon met a wizard. Yeah. That's kind of a crazy story too. I, I had a buddy I met at the Envision Festival, Alex Fredericks, just super dope guy, retired Sony record exec. And he's like from New York and he does these, um, him and his buddy do these, like, it's called Minerva and they do mind mapping. And so they at the festival, they were like doing EEG scans before people took psychedelics and then afterwards. <laughs> like, it was, so dope. it was really cool. So he calls, um, I land in Costa Rica. I get a message from him and he's like, Hey, what are you guys up to? And I said, Oh, we just got to Costa Rica. And he goes, Oh, I'm coming to town next week for two weeks to look for some land. Um, let's meet up. So they had a solstice dinner at his house and he's like, you got to meet this buddy of mine that came down with me. So I go to this dinner. We have this beautiful ceremony sitting at the table with this guy who looks like for real wizard, like Dr. Bear Walker, naturopath, MD, seventh generation medicine man who started his practice in Lyme, Connecticut. Whoa. So I'm learning this through the conversation, but for like five hours, he's just asking me all these questions. And he's like, just such a beautiful heart, man. He was so compassionate. He's like, Paul, you know, you've tried everything. I was like, hmm. <laughs> uh, that's not the news I was looking for. <laughs> <laughs> but he said, you know, we've seen a boga heal people of Lyme disease. And... I said, well, I did Ibogaine and it almost killed me. So not, not really wanting to go down there, but instantly in my heart, I knew like, this is why I was here. And I was like, damn. <laughs> okay. He's like, I said, I did Ibogaine. He goes, no, you got to do the full plant, the full 36 hour. And I was like, okay. So there was another guy at the dinner, Oliver. And I was looking for some different herbs and some mushrooms to make some microdosing protocols. And he was like, Oh, there's this church up in Tina Maste and ethnogenic free. We have different sacraments, like come check it out. And it was like 10 minutes from where we were staying at the time. So I go up there the next day. And as I'm leaving, Dr. Yash Paul, Chrysalis Jane comes strolling through the door because he lives in Oregon some of the time and Costa Rica some of the time. And so I meet him, I'm talking to him and I said, Hey, I'm supposed to go do this ayahuasca retreat, you know, um, at Sultara, like Aubrey and all these guys were going and I really want to do this, but I got to detox all this stuff and I'm not super stable. I'm not really sure. So let's, let's set up a, a meeting. So I go through this meeting with him and he's like, man, you've tried everything. You really should do a boga. And I was like, yeah, I've heard that <laughs> recently. And uh, he goes, yeah. Um, I said, I don't know where I would do that. He said, well, I've been serving there for 30 years. And just happened to, uh, he's like, if you want to 
if you want to do like the ultimate plant medicine journey, then we'll set up 14 days. You could do private at the wizard's nest. He has this three-story wooden tower with turrets in the top. (laughs) (laughs) I've taken some people up there recently and they're like, what? That's where you were? I'm like, yep. I'm on the floor in the living room. Um, and so he said, Hey, January 5th, we could start this, we could start this retreat and we'll do, um, said only like four people have like done it, which he later told me nobody's finished it, but you start with a boga day one, day three, a round of five MEO synthetic and a round of Bufo. Then if you don't go into withdrawals day four, which I did, <laughs> then you go into combo and then you do another round of five MEO and Bufo on the seventh day. And then you do San Pedro on the ninth day and then finish with two nights ayahuasca in the jungle. That's the most insane, incredible, do not recommend, but... 100% don't (laughs) recommend. Mm -mm. Because a lot of times people will hear my story. I get messages from people like every week. Hey, my friend's got Lyme disease, my friend's daughter. And one of the beauties about the journey I went on is I tried everything I could find. I'm sure there's more stuff out there, but... Not a lot of people have access to hundreds of thousands of dollars and are able to just spend like three years trying to figure it out. And that's one of the sad things about the disease. As it's being detected, like I think the average person, it's six to eight years before they get diagnosed with Lyme. So they just go through the ringer. And um, at that point, you know, a lot of times, like one of my good friends that was in the clinic, same time as me, he ran out of money. He's paraplegic. And so... There's other things that can help you on the path. You know, combos, I, I know at least 12 people that have been able to just use combo and be able to clear line with that. So at this point, it was like I tried everything. My body was ravaged and, you know, I'd gotten functional, but I was still in pain every single day. You know, I still lived with so much pain and anxiety and, just a lot of stuff that was like, it's going to take a long, long time to unwind it. And I felt called to be in Costa Rica and then magically meet Dr. Bear Walker, Oliver, Josh Paul. And I was scared to do it, but knowing he had that experience and just the care, because yeah, people have died. He's had somebody die under his care. And, um, you know, you have to do EKGs and there's a lot of stuff. They monitor your heart rate during the whole thing. Um, so it, it, Aboga is a, is a high-risk medicine. It's not to be taken lightly at all. Um, but I signed up for it, you know, and dude, I was, I was shaken. And one of the beautiful things in that time, I'm just remembering, because I saw Brian Bounds yesterday. So I was on some calls with some of the fit for service people and like the morning of, you know, I'm just like shaking, crying, very like just terrified of what, what might happen. 
Because it's like, you may go into a psychosis again, it happens. And, you know, you may be like, revert back to like a five-year-old for five days or seven days. Like, but we have a safe container here. Like, we'll take care of you until you come out of it. So this was like a real possibility. And um, Brian and some other people, like we got on a Zoom call and they all just prayed and meditated and just gave me like affirming words. And um, it was it was beautiful to have like the community rally around me in that moment. I really needed it. And, you know, Steph, of course, through this whole thing, is just like, she's the best. She's amazing. She's just like, dude, you got this. Like, this is not like the last time. You're in a different place. You've done so much work. You're ready for this. And so I sat with Dr. Bear Walker and we spent about four hours just going through intentions. Like he's like, look, anybody can go to the top of the mountain. What are you going to bring back? What is that about? He's like, you're a wizard. You know, you're going to bring this. Are you going to be a light wizard and bring healing and hope and inspiration and share this story with people and help people like, you really need to be crystal, crystal clear on your intentions. And so that was a big part of the, the process leading into it is um, writing all that out. And, you know, that's part of why I felt clearly after I went through the experience that I was supposed to take some time to integrate and enjoy being healthy and enjoy my family, which I did in Costa Rica for the last year. And then accepting the invitation to share the story and to help people wherever they're at. Because when you're in chronic pain and disease, man, that is, I have so much compassion for people going through that. And it's hard on their families, you know, and they're supporting them and they're trying to help them and they don't understand. And it just, um, it can be such a dark, dark place. And when you see or recognize these stories of, yeah, it is possible. Miracles do happen. Like I've got, got these two tattoos, Ruach, which means breath or spirit in Hebrew and Nish, which means miracle. So when I do my breath work and I'm anchoring this in every day, just a reminder, because even when you, like we forget sometimes, like we see them and then we observe them in our lives, but you know, life, we, we get caught up, we're moving, we're shaking, we're doing our thing. And I told you the story about my brother-in-law, the miracle of their baby. It's like remembering and anchoring these stories can build up our belief and our hope because ultimately that, that's a big part of it. When you're in a chronic illness, you lose hope that anything can ever change for you. Yeah. And that's where the mental, psychological stuff starts to take you down. So, um, so you do your four hours of intention on day one. Mm -hmm. And then I went up the mountain to the wizard's nest and then we we dropped into a boga that night and dude, <laughs> that, was, that was wild. That was wild. Cause with a boga, it's uh, they call it the tree of knowledge or um, the stern voice of truth. Ooh. It's like looking at the, in the mirror at all the most uncomfortable truths about yourself over and over again. And these stories will get, so in mine, I drop into the scene. I'm like in this safari kind of scene. And then I'm in a space shuttle and I fly out to like a star system in a little like animated, not quite animated, but it would be like this golden hued story, like little movie would pop up, acted out by 
friends and family from different eras of time. And I would go through a story and I would come to, they call it the fork in the road, higher self, lower self. And I would choose lower self and the story would just disintegrate in front of my eyes. And then another story would pop up. So I'd go through a cycle of three stories, choose lower self three times, start over at the first story, go through the story, choose lower self again, second round. Even though I knew the story and I was like, this time I'm going to choose this, I watched myself choose the lower self. And then the third round, I would go through the story. And when I chose higher self on the third round, it would go ding, ding, ding. Do you want to download this new belief system? And a button would pop up. Whoa. And I pressed the button and I could see it downloading into my brain and body. And this happened like a million times. And it was so uncomfortable because it's like, it's stuff with my kids. It's stuff with stuff. It's stuff with like, you know, withholding love. You know, that was like a big one. Like I had one with stuff where she like performed something and, and I was like, I wanted to tell her how amazing and beautiful and how incredible and all this. And I was just like, good job. And the story disintegrated. And so when I came through the third time, you know, when I kissed her and I just told her like all the things, you know, it was like, ding, ding, ding. I had stuff with my kids like that too. You know, my youngest like kept appearing over and over again. And he would just have his head down and he would scoot away from me. And I would like be trying to talk to him and connect with him. And he would just disappear. And after this felt like hundreds of times, I was just weeping. I'm like, Griffin, buddy, I don't know what to do. I love you so much. And he turned around and looked at me and said, hmm. You're ready to learn. Let me teach you how to love me. Whoa. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. So, and it's cool because like as you integrate, these things come up like in your interactions and, and you know, what he taught me was like, I'm the least maintenance of the three kids. So when I ask for your attention or your help, like I really need it. Like I'm not, and I'm like grabbing you and, and with you all the time. Like I got it. Like he's just a super self-sufficient guy. And um, so it reminds me of how to stay aligned to higher self. And that's one of the beauties um, to me. A bogus gets a bad rap. It's a beautiful medicine because it gives you this opportunity to really see yourself and love all parts of yourself and integrate that. So after this went on for, 15 hours. I'm laying on the ground, I'm blindfolded. And I get up, I go across the room, I have my hand on the door handle of the bathroom. And Jono, one of the other guys that's there, has become a super dear friend of ours, beautiful medicine man. He's like, you should take your blindfold off before you go in there. And so I'm like, oh. Okay, so I go in the bathroom, I come out. Yashpal says, you're in your third eye right now. Do you want to see? 
I'm like, yeah. So I lay down. I could see him get off the couch. I could see his long beard hanging down. He walks over and he starts tapping his fingers on my forehead. And it was like I was looking through the windshield of a car. I could see his fingers. I could see his beard. I could see like the whole room. He's like, okay, now you're ready to start asking questions, interacting with the medicine. Okay. First question, is my Lyme disease healed? And immediately I dropped into this vision space like I was in a safari plane with a starry night sky. And the sky started lighting up with these green neon yeses. And every time the, the, the yes would light up, it would go, yes, 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 yes. And so the whole sky was filled with these green neon yeses. And then I saw my spirit body drop down in front of me. And the spirit of God surrounding my body and just starting to pull things out of me. And the sound like, and then in that moment, the question was asked, you know, are you ready to receive your healing? Do you claim it? And a button popped up. And when I pressed the button, a hand went on my forehead and my chest and there was like a nuclear explosion of white light through my body. Just shot through me. And I felt my physical body just kind of like drop. And that was January 5th. And I haven't had treatment or medication since. (laughs) Dude. And, and that was day one. Yeah, that was day one. That was day one. Mm-hmm. One of the things that stands out to me is how, like, the healing mechanism of psychedelics, but really any altered state of consciousness, is it seems to speak through the language of metaphor and story Mm, and that there's something at the core of us that this is a really interesting thing with trauma healing too is that there are biological things that you can do to the body that can create healing but there's also this other realm where if someone has a felt sense potent story that leads to a transformational moment in the absence of doing anything specifically biological, they can have a transformation and healing. And like an example with like trauma healing is, you know, like you can do the breath work, you can do the somatic experiencing therapy, you can, you know, um, do type of like memory retrieval type things. But also there's plenty of stories where people will have a, story unfold in their imaginational realm and we can give it all sorts of you know more meaning than it needs to have but that like they might have a vision where you know they go into a dungeon and they find that their inner child is inside of a dungeon and then they unlock it and they embrace it and they start crying and that that and that something in them knows that in that moment whatever the thing is is healed yeah And that when I hear your story and many other stories that I've heard about these type of experiences, that 
it doesn't fit into our Western model of medicine, mm-hmm. but it's an ancient tradition in uh, medicine circles from all sorts of different cultures. And they call it thing like soul retrievals and things like that. But the, the core of your aboga story is it's like you were put through hundreds of stories, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you like one of the things that Carl Jung was trying to explain to people for a long time that still most people don't understand is that anything that happens phenomenologically, which is a fancy way of saying through your experience, whether it be through your physical meat suit, eyes open in the three-dimensional world or in the imaginal realm or in the dream realm, all of those are equally real when it comes to how the nervous system responds to it. And so you can be in a visionary space and go through an experience that you've never had in the three-dimensional space, but your nervous system will respond as if it's real. Mm-hmm. And so in, in the mm-hmm. realm of the psyche, all experiences are equally real. And uh, you got to feel viscerally what it felt like to choose the lower path over and over and over and over and over. And then your body also got to feel, your nervous system got to feel what it felt like to claim the higher path. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting how that progression goes through because you get defragmented down to this soul level where there's just everything stripped away, all the narratives, all the stories, all the doubt, all the fear. And when I came into that moment face-to-face with creator and seeing like really like this opportunity to heal is something I can claim and take in this moment and receive. And there was that congruency of faith and belief all aligning just perfectly in that moment and crossing that threshold. You know, a lot of the rewiring that happened leading up to that was just preparing my body for the healing so I can move into that new body and that new way of being. So what happened going forward after the atomic bomb of white light inside of your body where you got all the yeses and that you at least personally had the gnosis that your Lyme disease had been healed? Yeah. um, Because motherfucker, that was day one. That was day one. Yeah, it was. So we dropped into, um, you know, 5-MeO. And, you know, that was... That was a kind of a scary experience. You know, when you feel the ego dissolving and crossing over into the white light and, um, and then it's just beauty and oneness. And then you come back and then we drop in again. And the second time I was purging really hard and it felt like stuff was coming out of my bones. It was wild. And then I just got embodied like as a warrior. I'm like beating my chest and screaming. And then I just dropped down into a state of gratitude. And the one phrase that came through is to be of service is the greatest honor. And I still read that every day in my affirmations and my vision. reading and you know whatever 
whatever price, you know, it was like whatever price you had to pay, whatever you had to go through is worth it. And I had experienced a lot of gratitude because suffering teaches you so much. It's a master that, you know, 24 seven when you're in it and you're having to learn the disciplines and develop the character to stay alive and to keep moving forward. I mean, I've been in coaching since 1999 and paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to coaches and suffering has taught me more than anything. Yeah. You know, and all the guidance and help um, to me is like a crucial part to me. Like, I just can't imagine not being part of a community like fit for service or having a coach. Like that's just part of my life to be my highest and best self. But to be of service, to truly be of service and to have that heart of service is something that really came through in Bufo. And um, all my anxiety was gone. Like as soon as I went through that ceremony. The next day I went into withdrawals. Double migraine, balled up, shaking, sweating for it was about maybe 24 hours. And then he's like, okay, we're going to do a, a microdose of 5-MEO because it has a simil- similar properties to a migraine medication. So we did that and then we waited a few hours and then we did uh, 800 milligrams of a boga bark, which is just below threshold. So you're kind of seeing tracers, but you're not going fully into the experience. And that not only takes away pain, but it relieves um withdrawal symptoms and so then i think that was yeah that was the fourth night so i think i finally because with a boga you don't sleep a lot of times for three to five days so i think i slept that night maybe like three hours that was the first night i got some sleep and the next day um i think the next day they gave me a day off (laughs) (laughs) i don't remember exactly but i think so we might have dropped into combo the next day but i'm not sure so we went into combo you know the frog medicine sat with combo a lot of times um it's definitely one you want to have someone who's very skilled and knows what they're doing but you know flood your body with all the peptides lots of purging just clearing and cleaning clearing and cleaning house so did combo and then Steph and the kids were moving up to, um, we were moving up to a place in Nasara. And so I wasn't going to see them for like two weeks. And so after combo, I went and I took the kids to the river because they do their closing ceremony for combo. You get in a body of water and you swim like a frog. That's cool. Yeah. So I took the kids to the river and um, it was beautiful. Like I was, I was like, a little wrecked, but gave me a lot of like inspiration to continue the journey. Right. And then, um, day seven, we did five MEO and Bufo again. And just feel like there was a lot of healing. It's one of those medicines that's so ineffable in the experience that, you know, what you see going in fractals, you go through the tunnel and all of the stuff like, Sometimes what you, for me, what I came back with a lot of was just 
gratitude and a sense of healing in my body and in relationships. And um, then did another round of combo. That was a rough day. <laughs> I was so, because I purged on Bufo again. So I'm like, dude, I've been purging every single day, like multiple times a day. So by combo day seven, you know, I could barely walk. I was just, I would go in the morning, do some breath work and sit with some rape and meditate. And I was just like, man, I don't know if I could do this. But there's this really beautiful thing when you get pushed to your edge mm. and you're like, I don't think there's anything left in here. And then spirit's just like, you got this, dude. Yeah. Like, you could do this, do this. It's one of the true gifts of initiatory experiences and one of the great deficits that our culture has right now is that you can only unlock that thing yeah. by going to the complete edge. And almost none of us will ever go to the complete edge unless either our psyche, our body, or um, a container or a mentor that we trust forces us to. Yeah. I've had a lot of near-death experiences through my early years, Wolf of Wall Street decade. <laughs> but there was something like different about consciously going through it and like the ceremony, like what we went through with the temple reset last week. And you see people just, everyone's edge is different. And to see people transcend that in what emerges, just the beauty like that that warrior spirit, that deep groundedness of just like, and that belief in themselves and that self-love of like, I'm loving myself putting, putting me through this process. So there's a lot of self-love that comes through. And a lot of times when you're going on the healing thing, there's this hatred that I developed towards my body. Mm, yeah. And so there was so much healing that needed to happen towards loving my body, loving my temple, and really coming back into a relationship with it. And it was something that, you know, that was a big part of why I was in the predicament in the first place. Right. Because I was so disassociated from my body. I was like, oh, you're tired? Okay, more drugs, more stimulants, more, just keep driving, 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 driving. And so I wouldn't say I've perfected that. I found rhythms that help me stay attuned where I'm checking in, where I have checkpoints at different parts of my day to make sure that I'm staying in alignment. And sometimes with life, you're not. And so it's like, okay, we're going to be out of alignment for a few days. How do we move back into that? Yeah. And so it doesn't that. become this like five year, 10 year thing where it's all deferred maintenance and then you just fall apart. Yeah. So let's see day eight, San Pedro. At this point, I'm just, shuffling along <laughs> you know, I'm, just, I'm just shuffling along san pedro it was great and it was it was my first experience with that at the time i've used it a lot since and it's a beautiful integration medicine really heart opening really grounding and exactly what i needed and so a bunch of people from the community medicine people came and uh prayed and did tobacco prayers and had a little dance party 
I fell asleep in the hammock. <laughs> I was about to say, did you do that? <laughs> no, I was not dancing. <laughs> I got up for a minute. I'm like, I'm not dancing. I'm just swaying because I can barely stand up. So, yeah. So that was, uh, let's see, that was on day, I guess that would have been maybe day 10. Day 10, we did San Pedro. So then I had a couple days off. You know, I'm just writing, integrating, journaling, and then we went up to, um, Josh Paul has worked with a guy, Taita Jose from Columbia for a long time, and they were doing a mountaintop ayahuasca experience. So we drove up to the top of this mountain and slept on the ground in the jungle and you know, that was the part he was like, nobody makes it to this part, you know, (laughs) he told me later after the fact, he told me later, it's like, wow, I can't believe you did that. It's like, I thought you said four people have done this. Oh no, they never finished that part. It's like, oh, okay. Well, my intention coming when I met him was to sit with ayahuasca and, you know, sitting with the Colombians, um, was a really beautiful experience. A lot of purging some strong, strong medicine. Those guys start so late, man. We'd start at like one in the morning. Oh my God. We're taking a second cup at sunrise. <sighs> and then they had a rape master that would blast you off again. So at noon, you're getting just blasted with rape and reactivated purging again. It was, it was quite an experience, but it was really, um, I got a lot of self-love and healing in that, um, in the ayahuasca experience. Had so many beautiful visuals and uh, the first night was really difficult from the purging because I'm like, is there anything left in here? Right. Because I was just starting to eat food again. And um, so that part of it was a little challenging. Sleeping on the ground in the jungle, getting annihilated by bugs um, was a little uncomfortable. But the people were really beautiful. And I got to sit with a couple. Um, Yashpal sat in, in ceremony with me. Oliver sat in ceremony with me. And so it was really beautiful to go through that journey with them and be able to talk through it. And I had so many beautiful uh, realizations and insights and visions. And then uh, the second night, I was, was pretty brutal. I went into like a, I, would, I thought I lost my mind, like a psychosis. I was laying on the ground, like pounding it. And I was just talking like a million miles an hour. And until I lost my voice. And as I was going through it, I'm just like, wow, you've done it, man. You just went over the edge. You're done. You're going to the insane asylum. You're never going to see your family again. Like it was unraveling super hard. And the thought that I had in that moment was, can you still love yourself even if you're crazy? Because you know this like train is like gonna keep running around as long as it goes and you're not in charge of that right now, but wherever it lands, can you still love yourself? And um, eventually, it transitioned out into a really beautiful experience and 
just visions of my family and my kids and saw my daughter just like levitating above the earth with this like Wonder Woman rainbow hair flowing out over the whole globe. And I was just in awe, just like, wow, you know, the power that we have that we can claim that's unfolding. A couple of things that come to mind there that feel important to note is when Carl Jung went through his four-year psychosis in the middle of his life, he credited the thing that anchored him was that he had a family, he had children, and he had people that he served. And that that was the thing that kept him from completely losing his mind. And the other thing that's really powerful is my quote-unquote worst experiences with psychedelics uh, all have the same thread. And it's essentially when you're in the space, it brings you to what feels like uh, unbearable truth. And it's essentially asking you, can you love you? Can you love yourself if this were true? But it doesn't feel like if this were true. It's because this is true now. Right. Can you love yourself? And that one of my hardest experiences was I accidentally ate 180 milligrams of THC. And um, Hmm. in hindsight, what had happened is my psyche was showing me all the traumas that had happened to people in my lineage as if I was both the victim and the perpetrator of these traumas and like the most heinous things. And the consistent question was, can you love yourself if this were true for you? But again, in the moment, it's not if this were true. It's like, okay, uh, you've been raped. Can you love yourself? You have raped. Can you love yourself? You've beaten a child. Can you love yourself? You've you've had a parent that has beaten you. Can you love yourself? And just going through probably about 12 different versions and that um, on the other side of that, there's this just unflinching, like, I've cultivated the capacity to if the worst things have happened to me or if I have done the worst things that I can love myself. And love myself is kind of the not quite the right word. It's, uh, I allow this, I I would allow this to be true and still try to help the world. You know, it's kind of like fundamentally what Mm. it was. Yeah. Like that deep level of acceptance. And I think you brought up a good point of like, sometimes as you enter in these things, you have these anchors that are external family service that gets you to a certain point. And then there's a threshold of like taking that and internalizing that and having that deep root and groundedness within yourself because that can never be taken away from you. And from that place, you can do the service. You can take care of the family. But for me, I've been so externally motivated my whole life that that was the neglect, right? That was the part that was cut off, was having that deep internal acceptance and love and root grounding me and it was just chasing the external which can motivate you but when you're disconnected and disassociated from your body then you're not in attunement yeah and so it was a beautiful segue from all that i'd gone through at that point into really feeling that deeply and um man Last morning, I woke up, 
drove to um, drove to meet Steph by Sotara. I mean, dude, I was shaky, bro. <laughs> I was, I'm like on the on the ferry going over. I did some rapping in the bathroom, trying to ground. I'm like, bro, I, I'm gonna lose it. It was rough. And then I, I, because she was going into a retreat at Sultara and then there was like an hour that I could see her and, you know, cause we were apart for almost three weeks during this whole thing. And I went up to Nasara and like integrated with the kids and had a couple of friends that came and helped out. And, but yeah, that was uh, 14 days, 14 days of magic in the wizard's nest. And then I saw you a couple of months later and I was like, what yeah. the fuck? Yeah, it would have been about um, probably exactly two months. I saw you in Costa Rica. And you're like, you just walked up and you're like, what happened? <laughs> what happened, dude? Like the, the felt sense of the energy coming through you was truly like it was a different human. Yeah. It was one of the most incredible like energetic transformations in that period of time that I in my life have ever seen up to this point in my life. Yeah. Yeah. This is a quantum, quantum shift. And so what is this new life now that you have, you know, like what is the thing that you're aimed at? What are you doing? And, uh, what feels like is your uh, gift of service that you're giving now? Yeah, I really, um, I was super eager to like get back in the mix like right away. And one of my mentors, she was my, my spiritual director for like 12 years. She said, um, it's okay to like just be healthy and enjoy your life for a minute. It's like, I'm like, what is this? What's next? What? And so all year, I'm just like rest. And you and I talked about it a couple of times where I'm like, dude, I'm like ready to go. Like, let's go. <laughs> and um, around December, like things started shifting again. I'd been just doing in Costa Rica where we live, just doing um, some private coaching. And I work with, um, we set up these kind of experiences for small groups where we're doing a lot of the practices I learned going through the suffering and then practices I learned in integration, you know? So like Phoenix is what we call the program, but it's F I E N X because a fiend and X symbolizes God or redemption or healing or completion. And so we've been doing these like small group experiences. We go up in the mountains, we go down to Osa Peninsula. We do a lot of stuff at our, our compound down there with ice and breath and microdosing and dude, it's been so much fun. I'm just like, okay, can I just do this all the time? And, um, the answer is yes. So I'm working on, <laughs> so I'm working on that stuff. Steph has, um, I've been supporting, just doing some like women's retreats and things that have been just super fun to support posted some concerts down there you know savage from the ffs community came down and did a solstice concert at her place that was just whoa i heard it was legendary dude it was unreal people in the community are like hey um 
if we put in money now, can we get them to come back? Like people are like chipping in, we're like trying to figure out a bigger space. Like it's, it's pretty cool. So, um, the, like the coaching and retreats I'm working on, um, we're rolling out some stuff there and small group stuff, like 12 people or less. I like to keep it like small and tight. And so we can go deep. And a lot of it's just sharing different practices and things that I've learned and that I'm learning. It's just like, hey, this is what I'm working on right now. San Pedro and L. Like, let's let's run with this. And here's the protocol and here's the diet. And and so that's been really fun. And then the private coaching, I've really enjoyed doing that. So um also working with a lady about a book. So that's, that'll be coming down the pipeline, you know, eventually. But, uh, and to me, the hub of it, like the coaching and the retreats are about creating experiences for people that can see a different way of living and being in the world. The hub for me is going to be a regenerative off-grid sovereign community. You know, we've worked, we do a lot of crypto masterminds down there. Um, so our friends just launched a Bitcoin wallet in Costa Rica. We're supporting and helping with. And so there's a, there's a lot of ways that when I look at what's going on on the planet, and this is something, I mean, sitting with you for four days of journaling and having all these fragments and pieces that I was trying to pull together And that last day, like that visual just dropped in and it's so clear in my head. And it's like, yeah, all these pieces are are part of it. But the hub of it is having a regenerative community that is a place for healing and hope and inspiration. There's people that live there. There's people that come and live there for a month. There's people that come and intern there. But it's, it's just when we were doing the visualization at the end, um, I had this thing about, I had this narrative critique about going through experiences and watching people not do anything with it. Yeah. And discounting it and just being like, it's great, bro. I'm glad you're excited. You know, like (laughs) call me in a month and let me know how it's going. And there was this thought that came through uh, in our meditation where it was like, is that story really serving you, man? Mm. why are you discounting these people? Like they're in that moment. They're like, they're in it and they're with it and their heart is in it. Why would you undermine that? Does this serve you anymore? I'm like, no, it doesn't. And as soon as I said that, I had this vision of like pollen. And it was like, what if that experience is like pollen? And, you know, you're attaching to the experience and wanting it to look a certain way. Well, they said they're going to make a nice pass, so they better go, you know, it's like, what if it's a piece of pollen that floats out into this other community and something else comes alive that looks totally different? I love that. And so as I was having that, I'm like, oh, okay. Well, you know, creating these ecstatic experiences for people, Recapture the Rapture. I'm a big fan of that book. Same. Yeah. And when you're creating these experiences, Uh, I think it's easy for my ego to attach to like how that manifests and rolls out. And I think the community hub is just a way to cross pollinate 
and let people come into their greatest unfolding and their greatest and highest best self. And so I think the village and creating the village and a new way of life is really the heart of all of it. And it's a big, it's a big project. It's a big dream, you know, and there's, there's so much interest in doing it. You know, there's, there's such a deep, you know, whisper in people to have something like that. And we truly have unique opportunities where we're at in Costa Rica to develop something with a food forest and water power and solar power. And, you know, it's, it's something that you can make happen and there's people there that are making it happen. And so all the other things will be, you know, parts of it, but at the core is like, that's the way of life. How do we create a new way of life? I was down in the Osa Peninsula a couple of weeks ago, which is like the wildest place, most biodiverse place on the planet, like super, super jungle. And I'm sitting on the beach with um, my buddy, Jono, who was part of that 14 days. And I'm like, man, you know, with the kids and tech and like, I don't like tech allows me to do this. We wouldn't be here. And he's like, I'm like, so like, how, uh, like, how hard do I train him in this or teach him or such a tug of war? And he's like, what if there was just a whole different way of life? You know, imagine what a whole different way of life would look like where they, they could have it, but they don't need it. You know, cause you're farming the land, you're tending the cattle, you're helping people, you're serving medicine, you're doing these things and they're not tethered to their device 24 seven. Yeah. And it's really like, um, something that I just feel like deep passion and calling to do, create a new way of life and having that be like the healing pollen that floats out across the globe and giving people a place to come and immerse. Cause you know how it is when you immerse, it's just like, dude, it's so different when you're living it, you're experiencing it, you're walking the land, you're harvesting, you're doing all the things and yeah, you're taking that in. It's bringing the bees to the flower and they fucking bathe in the pollen. And then boom, they go out because it can feel overwhelming, like how gnarly things are in the world sometimes. And I think before the reset, there was a lot of feeling of just like, I can car, I can carve out my own path and take care of mine. And it's going to be, we're going to be all right. And you, when you were talking about thinking audaciously, like really tapping into that creator manifestor source within each of us and going into that visional space, what does that look like? It's like, yeah, to be of service is the greatest honor. Mm. The way that feels uh, poetic to end this podcast is to ask you, uh, what was your favorite story as a child? Either um, a movie or a book that you read or maybe a story that one of your parents told you. Um, first, what was the story? Hmm. That's a hard one. And I was like the weird kid. I would cut class and go sit in the library and hide in the corner and read like a book a day. And I was obsessed with books. Same. A lot of pirates. 
King Arthur. I read the King Arthur book. Like there was like a big one that had like all the stories of the knights. I read that a million times. If you had to go off your intuition, what's the story that comes up first? I think King Arthur was the first one that I thought of. And so the invitation is imagine uh, your, your youngest, your son asks you for a bedtime story. And it's not like a memorization recounting of the King Arthur story, but if you just told it from your heart, like you were telling a bedtime story, so you can't do it wrong. Um, could you tell that story to us like we were your son? So hmm. once upon a time. Hmm. Once upon a time. Wow. It's interesting. Okay. Because now like the cartoons coming out of my head too. I love that King Arthur cartoon. But, you know, once upon a time, there's a, there's a young boy that was a servant in a castle. Nobody saw him. Nobody thought he would amount to much. Every day he worked away. And... Through the course of events, he went to a knight's tournament. There had been this sword and a stone for all these years. And the next king would be the one that pulled it from the stone, but nobody had been able to do it. Now it was covered in ivy and dirt, neglected. Nobody looked that way. He had forgotten the knight's sword. And as he scrambled and looked around, he saw this stone and he went and he grabbed it and it magically came out. And everybody was in awe and wonder. And the beautiful thing about King Arthur is that although he was in the lowest and the most mistreated as his vision for creating a kingdom came to pass, he created the round table and he invited in the best and the brightest and the most skilled to serve the kingdom in myriad of ways. And he brought peace and prosperity to his kingdom. And throughout, he was guided by a wizard. <laughs> Can't forget Merlin. Yeah. Yeah, the thing that I love and that I feel most deeply is that um, the part of that story that stands out to you as the most important is the round table, is to bring together the greatest minds as equals to creating. And I think that that's the great retelling of like the game A myth is a king that tells everyone else what to do. Yeah. You know, and that's how most corporations and companies and governments and institutions are ran. And that the game B story is uh, a true king brings together a bunch of kings and queens. Yeah, the infinite game. And works as a community. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for seizing the sword and for sharing your story. And uh, I look forward to the rest of our lives at the round table together, brother. Yeah. Thanks, bro. Thank you.